one night I kind of lost it. I had a really terrible experience with my roommate and I ended up in a straight jacket in a padded room, having no clue like what's going on or where I'm supposed to be. Hello, this is Al Levin, the creator and host of the Depression Files podcast. For over two and a half years, I've been creating and publishing this show every other Sunday. Of course, there is a cost to producing a podcast, from paying the podcast hosting site to the equipment to a significant amount of my own personal time. Because of this, I've decided to create a Patreon page and hope that you'll consider contributing so that I can continue the important work of allowing men to share their stories. Please check it out at patreon.com slash the depression files. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the depression files. In addition, it would help me out greatly if you could take a minute to rate and review the show. Thank you for considering to support me in these ways. And now to the show. Welcome to The Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello, this is Al Levin of The Depression Files. Tonight, uh, I'm very excited. We have Brett Stevens on the line. Brett is a startup consultant, a professional poker player, and an author. Brett, welcome to the show. Hey, Al. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So you um, have an interesting background of a person who's living with bipolar disorder. Yes, that's correct. And it's bipolar. I know there's bipolar 1 and bipolar 2, and I believe you live with bipolar 1, correct? Yep, that's it. And, uh, you know, I did a little reading about you. It sounds like... Um, from from what my take on it, and I'd love for you to tell me if if I'm wrong. You have a couple of brothers, and your upbringing, everything in the house, um, pretty typical upbringing. Yeah, absolutely. Really, really close with my brothers, close with my parents. Um, competitive atmosphere, you know, trying to do well in school. We we had a lot of friends, and yeah, just very good memories from childhood. Yeah, I remember uh, reading something about you play in basketball and maybe being like the shortest of the crew or are you the youngest brother? I'm the middle, which okay. was so interesting. It's if I'm in the middle, shouldn't I be the second tallest? But <laughs> I, I'm the shortest somehow. So you were the shortest one who had to work the hardest. Uh, did you end up playing ball uh, at school? Yeah, I started uh, for my varsity basketball team as a sophomore. Um, I actually broke the assist record and as a senior, I, I was a captain. So definitely I had a wow. really experience with that yeah that's awesome that's really cool and uh, you said a tight family school was good yeah did well in school uh had a was was pushed by my parents to do well and really just listened to them and and did what i needed to do and was able to focus on studies instead of needing to get you know a part-time job so i I was definitely had the time and kind of energy to put towards that and and that led to us pretty much all three of us having good grades and you know going off to college after high school that's awesome how about socially you had a good group of friends at school 
Yeah, definitely. Uh, a lot of my friends I had known from elementary school or middle school, and I just have known them for forever is what it seems like. And I'm still friends with really the same people. But yeah, uh, different friends, you know, lots of different groups of, of friends uh, really could get along with with most people. And like I said, my, my friends that I've known forever, I'm, I'm still very close with. Yeah, that's awesome. And then uh, you went away for college. Is that right? Yep. I went to a school in the South for college. I was going to be pre-med like my dad was. And that was my intention going in was to come out and be some sort of uh, physician. Okay. Your dad's a doctor? Yep. Okay, cool. So um, you went to pre-med uh, and was this far away from home? Were you living away for home, from home for the first time? Yeah. So I was, I grew up in Pennsylvania and I went actually went to school in Florida. So decent trips out oh, there. Yeah. Yeah. Quite, <laughs> quite decent. So in hindsight, looking back, did you see any kind of indicators? Cause I know until college, everything seemed great. Do you see any kind of indicators that you could look back at in hindsight to say, wow, I could have seen some kind of mental illness coming because of such and such. Not really. I would say the closest thing to that would have been the way that my brothers and I competed against each other. I, I certainly had like a chip on my shoulder and was would get very angry if I would lose at something. And my older brother was good at kind of like pushing me and, and pushing my buttons at, at times to, to get me to, to sometimes even like a more upset place. But other than that, you know, my, my friends were doing the same things with their brothers. So it didn't seem abnormal in any way. But as I went back and wrote this book, I really think that was probably the only thing that I noticed was that I had basketball as a place to display some of this anger. Whereas once I got to college, I didn't play as much basketball and the anger was just more kind of part of me. But, right. but that, yeah. So I hear you saying basketball was pretty much an outlet for you to get your frustration out. But you also mentioned, and I would agree, you know, pretty typical of sibling rivalries, right? Was, do you think your anger was more than the typical anger? I mean, were you having explosive outrage when you weren't playing ball? No, I was very, I was the opposite, actually, very calm, relaxed. And really, I think mo many, much of the time, I was probably the only one that really knew how angry I was. I don't know that I was telling people, but, but every once in a while at home, it would come out a little bit like with my brothers on the basketball court at night or something. That's when I would just be very free with it. Uh -huh. But day to day, you know, no, like nothing really could get me too thrown off uh, in a normal day to day setting. So just out of curiosity, what makes you think or feel now like that's different than most guys on the, the basketball court, especially those who are really competitive? Honestly, I don't know if it makes me any different from, from anyone else on the basketball court. I, when I wrote this book, I kind of reflected and was almost searching for something because it was so confusing to me that I could have these, these episodes of you know, mania and depression and, and maybe the closest thing to something that could have some sort of uh, like parallel would have been that slight anger right. during that. But do I think it was, was I more competitive than Michael Jordan? No, <laughs> you know, I was way, way, you know, just kind of in a, in a suburb playing basketball uh, very seriously, but not in a, in a place where it was overtaking my mood or my life in any way outside of the basketball court. Right, right. Even looking back, no sense of uh, anxiety that you could put your finger on or anything like that. 
uh, felt felt pretty normal. Um, I had good support, and if I did have those sorts of feelings, I, I'm lucky to ha- have a family that was very supportive and, and wor- helped me work through those things. Right, and I would have to say, from the men I've spoken to who ha- live with bipolar disorder, that's pretty typical. A lot of men don't have any kind of symptom or sign of it coming at all until you know typically uh, the first onset which oftentimes is late teens maybe real early 20s yeah that's that's exactly when my first episode happened and it's it's just very confusing obviously for the person for me it's confusing for many on many different levels, but the the family around you is confused as well if if they've never been through it before. So it really impacts everybody. And were you away at college during your first episode? Yes. So I was at college, and luckily my younger brother had scheduled just a random visit to come see me uh, the weekend that I was in my episode, and he mentioned to my parents that something might have been a little bit off. And then that was really what tipped my parents to to help me get back and get the help I needed for the first episode. So definitely a lot of random chance that I had the right person there. Yeah. Yeah. And how old were you at the time? I was 19. A freshman? So first semester, sophomore year. Okay. Okay. So sophomore year. And tell us, um, looking back, how that episode began. Like what were the first... Uh, first signs of something being off. Yeah. And I think what I've, as I talk about the book and and think more about these things, part of what's very almost disturbing about my episodes is that I have no awareness that they're happening. So I can only really reflect on it once I'm out of it and recovered. And I've had three of these things. So in college, you, you could ask me what's going on and I would have said, I'm having a normal day at school, but you know, nothing is going on. But when I look back on it, you know, I woke up and I'm just noticing, you know, birds flying around or, you know, one is sitting on my car and that that's significant in some way. Um, I lose track of time a little bit more and I'm anxious and I'm driving through red lights in my car. I, I sit in class and I'm hearing talk of different students and I'm experiencing it as though they're talking about what I'm doing. He's up in the top row. He's writing his pencil. That That's kind of what. It, my experience was. Um, so then, they, yeah. they may have been talking about something different, but you were hearing them literally believing and hearing them speak about you. Right. Like if someone in front of me were to say like, he went to the store last night, my thought when I'm in this episode is I didn't go to the store last night. Like what, what does that mean? But right. they're not even talking about me. Yeah. So you, and you just get rounds and rounds of that. Um, and so I'd say like that was the first types of things that were happening that were, were leading me to this like, you know, bipolar one episode, which is, you know, very dangerous high uh, thing. So take us from there, from you, you have this experience with the birds, which by the way, I did read that part of your book, which is online. I found an excerpt and that was it. And your writing is phenomenal, by the way. So I'm looking forward to reading the whole book. But I did read about that, and it was really interesting. It was you, you talked in a lot more detail about just kind of birds became really significant to you in that day, and you started really kind of deep thinking about why they exist and how they're connected to you. It seemed like, and and then in the lecture, uh, the professor actually pulled out a picture of a bird, right? Yeah, and thanks for saying that. I really appreciate it. 
he did. And that was just, you know, more reinforcement that everything that I was thinking of was, was perfectly normal and, you know, made sense. But yeah, so, you know, after the birds thing, my, then I started seeing other people's perspectives. (laughs) Uh, so I'm thinking of, you know, if someone's walking towards me, what are they seeing? You know, they're seeing my face, they're seeing the background behind me and, and just several iterations of this type of like perspective taking that can, you know, that, that was like what I tried to describe, you know, past after the birds thing, that was really the next thing I wasn't sleeping. And then really the most dangerous thing ha- that happened during this first episode was I was supposed to pick my brother up at the airport who was visiting me where I, he kind of figured out something was wrong. And I was going to be, you know, I was very happy driving and I missed the exit to pick him up at the airport. And instead of doing what most people would do, which would be drive 10 minutes out of the way and go get him a little bit late, I just couldn't handle it. I, I turned over this, the barrier on, on like a five lane highway, you know, one of those down into the divot and then up on the other side. Wow. I just zoomed right in the airport and I picked him up and I was like, right on time as usual. And he, he didn't know the difference, <laughs> but <it> was, <laughs> that was one I was by myself, very dangerous and, uh, felt nothing of it. Look, you know, look, I took a shortcut to the airport that, that was the thought process. Right. So, and like you explained earlier at the time, you see nothing wrong with that. That's like, that was normal, right? Oh, oops, I missed it. I'm just going to go through the ditch here and over to the other side and, and get him. But in hindsight, you're able to remember that. And I know also I read that you actually have hypernesia, which is like a really super vivid and and pretty incredible, it sounds like, memory. Is that right? Yeah, I didn't even really know what that was until my doctor read through this this story and she said, this is what you have. And, And my understanding is it means I can recall during traumatic events, I can recall things in great detail. So these episodes, there's so much trauma and and very intense situations. And, you know, as I started writing this, I was able just to walk through those situations and and remember details. And she connected that to to having hypernesia, which is like the ability to remember these things during those times of trauma. During the times of trauma, but it's the memory is actually after it, right? So it's like when you wrote your book, being able to recall those traumatic times. Is that right? Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. So, so now I have the, I had the ability while I was writing this to like take myself back to that place, use my memory to then go and like walk the, the reader through. And that in is my, really cool. Yeah. And is there a risk? Did you ever get triggered while you were writing it with these vivid memories of the incidents? Did, was it ever triggering for you? No, it was actually the opposite. I had, I've had three episodes over a 10-year period, and I wasn't even diagnosed until the very last one. And so I'm sitting here reflecting and really recovering from the last one and just thinking, like, how could this happen? Like, what, what does all this mean? And honestly, like, it was therapeutic just to sit down and just write everything that had happened because I was holding this stuff in for a decade and when I let it out and wrote it down, it was kind of like, okay, this is this decade of these insanely high high highs and low lows and things that happened in between that were cool, whatever. And and now I, I felt just like a little bit more at peace with it all. And mm-hmm. I had been wanting to tell these things to people, but I never really knew how and it never really came up. But so I kind of am just able to say now, like, here, read this book. This is what happened. 
and, and it's a useful tool. That's really cool. And I could see that being therapeutic. I mean, I talk a lot to men who use, and I have used journaling to, you know, help me get through a depression, for example. And I think uh, writing can be very therapeutic. Yeah, I totally agree. So tell us, I want to get back to the story. So you pick your brother up. Do you think he has any inkling that something's going on right when he sees you? Well, no, but remember, I'm, I'm thinking nothing is going on. So I wouldn't even have the awareness to know if he thought things were off. But after speaking to him, you know, I guess afterwards, he said he could just kind of tell the way I was speaking was, was a little off. I wasn't as like relaxed as I usually am. I was a little more uptight and just moving a little more, you know, quickly. And so I think over the weekend, you know, I woke him up at like four in the morning to get breakfast, little things like that, which clearly were not, you know, how I was when, when we were growing up, how I would act. So I, my guess is he didn't really pick up on it until maybe the first like couple hours that we, we were together. But I, I doubt that he would have thought Brett's having a, you know, psychological issue within the first five seconds of seeing me. Right. But eventually you mentioned he, he was concerned enough that he called your folks. Yeah, he, he called my folks without really telling me, which I was upset about. And, and do you then, know what it was that that you had done or just the accumulation of everything? Or what was it that you had done that made him think, like, wow, this is serious enough that I'm going to give our parents a call? Yeah, I think he was only there for a couple days over a quick weekend. And my I had two roommates at the time, so I something tells me that the three of them got to talking a little bit about really how I had been before he got there. My brother, uh, I think he pieced it together. He saw how I was acting and then he kind of reported that back to my parents. And before I knew it, my dad's at at the front door in the South saying, Hey, we got to go and we're going home. And so I was very confused. He showed up to the door of your place. Yeah. Uh, he he called me and said, Hey, how's it going? I'm going to come down there. And I just brushed it off and said like, why, what's the point? And what I remember is just a few days later, he's there and we're like packing frantically, like we got to get to the airport, let's get out of here. And I'm, I'm very confused and I'm following him because I'm like, okay, something, this must be another exciting adventure that I've been chosen to go on. And then ultimately I'm back speaking to a psychiatrist in my hometown who then basically points me in the direction of the psychiatric hospital and I'm like very excited to go there because I think I'm a specially chosen person to to have that opportunity to go there. So this you're still obviously in the mania at this uh, point. Yeah, yeah. How and, long did this first mania last? So uh, it was seven days, and I'd say about six of them were in the south, you know, at school of just different things that I was describing before, and then. Just to get to the hospital, I'd say it was seven days. And then, you know, as they start to give you medicine and work things out, I mean, it's probably another two to three weeks there with still being manic as taking medicine to really get it to a place where it's you're coming down from that a little bit. Wow. But yeah, the hospital experiences, I mean, mine have been I'm just as manic in the hospital as I am out of the hospital uh, beforehand. And then it takes an extra like couple weeks to really kind of start coming down. So originally when you went to the hospital, you mentioned being excited because you're in a mania and you think you're feeling like really special. What's it like when you get in there? And when do you finally realize like, I'm not in here because I'm so special. I'm in here because I'm struggling. Yeah. Well, I've been hospitalized three times and every single time 
it was the same experience of like, I'm supposed to be here. This is special. So I wasn't really able to connect that I had already been to the hospital <laughs> on the other times. But in there, you're surrounded by other people who are not well. There is a lot of confusion about are the nurses and doctors trying to keep me in there? Uh, do I have the right medicine? Because they'll say one thing, but then your floor mates are saying that they gave them the wrong medicine and they are not helping, helping them at all. And so it's a big mess of like, who do you trust? What can you do? You're, you're very bored. And for me, I just, one night I kind of lost it. I had a really terrible experience with my roommate and I ended up in a straight jacket in a padded room having no clue like what's going on or where I'm supposed to be. So it's very, very um, traumatizing. Were you and, getting violent? Is that why they put you in a straitjacket? No, I had a, a roommate was being, um, let's say he was getting a little too close <laughs> in, in our small room. Okay. And we were on separate sides and I like noticed something going on and I just like was like, I need to get out of here. This is not working, you know, get me out of here and much more dramatic. And I, I wrote about this in the book too, but like I started throwing books, was yelling and like two guards kind of like bear hug me and put me into a straitjacket just because I was I was not uh, I was reacting to something that had happened, but it was just I was going on and on about it uh, to a place where like they had they had no other choice. Uh, I mean, so so that was the first experience. The, the second experience well, I was hold on. Uh, so that I mean, tell us about that. You go, they bring you into a padded room. Yeah, and and you're in a straitjacket, and do they just close you in a small padded room then so they it's not as dramatic as it was as it would be in a movie they say brett you know i'm giving you an opportunity to take the straight you're going to sleep in here tonight but i'm giving you an opportunity to take that jacket off right now if you know if you behave or whatever like we'll take it off and like i instantly was like okay okay like take it off you know, like I wasn't like, no, keep it on me. You know, I, I had some awareness of like, okay, this is going to get really bad if I have to be in this thing for very long because it was so uncomfortable. So they took it off. They brought me a bed into there. You know, it's not like they were like sleeping in the corner. You know, they were they were very nice. Um, so so that's how I got out of it. And then the next morning, my roommate was just gone, and then I got my bed back, and we okay. just moved. Yeah. And so your your entire stay you essentially are in your room is there like a communal area and are there uh, are there groups of lessons and therapy going on or really just trying to get you medicated properly i i definitely think they're trying to get you medicated properly but a typical day would be there so there's rooms in the, the hospital that i was in there are rooms around the outside of one like central area that has like a couch and a tv and then there's just a long hallway, like straight out of the movies, you know, and then there's in ours, there was like a kitchen and like a dining room in the back. So the day is, you know, you're waking up. And for me, I just had anxiety like all day long. So I wake up, I'm just so anxious, restless, just thinking about how I can get out. But really, at the end of the day, all I, all I actually accomplished each day was I ate three meals. I sat in two separate groups. And I played Uno and watched TV. Like that's the whole thing summed up from like an outsider's perspective. But like in there, I thought I was developing an escape plan and I was reading people's minds and I was doing all these special things. But yeah. But, the, but there I, was group therapy. There, there was group therapy that I would participate in. Yeah. And it was, you know, just uh, you learn about other people's stories and 
you know, I don't think I was really in a place to, to grasp what people were actually dealing with. Cause I was so just still thinking that, that I was solving some, you know, problem. Right. That, and, and were you literally trying to create an escape plan and figure out how to get out of there? <laughs> yeah. Most of the time I was in there. I, I mean, I would try to look for patterns on when the, the door would open. Uh, I would try to, there were cameras, so I would try to write messages to the cameras and I would try to pretend like I was getting more sick in the hospital so that they would see that and then let me out. Everything. I, I had all day to think, so that's what I was thinking about. <laughs> and did you have anything with you? Did you have a notebook to write in or I'm sure they didn't, they took away electronics, I would imagine. Yeah, and this was 10 years ago, so there was really a lot less less technology at that time, too. But, uh, yeah, just paper and pencil. I would draw. You know, I'd be coloring, realizing that it was ridiculous that I was coloring. You know, in my mind, I was like, what am I, like a third-grade child? I'm coloring here. But I would do it because they said, hey, do this. It'll, it'll increase your chance of getting out of here. Right. So Oh, I was very compliant. Uh, when they told me that something was going to get me out of there sooner, I, I would do it. Right. And so you're describing delusions, right? Where you feel like everything is about you and you, you're this kind of great power and so forth. Did you also have any hallucinations, visual or auditory hallucinations? Yes, definitely. What were some of those like? So my doctor was a gray-haired man with glasses and a lab coat. And I just woke up one morning and I felt clicking, like just a clicking sound in my head. And for some reason, I like pictured a group of gray haired scientists kind of like clicking up voltage, like connected to my brain or whatever. And like as they clicked it, I would feel it. And so I woke up and I was still feeling it. <laughs> so I was feeling this clicking, thinking that some sort of electricity was flowing through the whole floor. And then I walk out of my room and the doctor's coming down the hallway. And I was, we had a meeting. He was saying, hey, Brett, like, how's your medicine? The typical just doctor interaction. And on my side, I'm thinking he's developed this whole plan to get us, our brains are frying and he's the, the source of all of our pain. And, you know, just, and I now, you know, now I know that was just him checking in on me and me being sick. Right. <laughs> wow. And so were the hallucinations daily like continual yeah just just if you're not hallucinating then because they're bodily too so i'd say almost all day long something's happening that probably isn't real right whether it's like a feeling type of thing or something a feeling or something might look a different way and yeah, you might just hear a crack in the wall and then it's like, oh, who's in the wall? Yeah. And that's not a real, that's not a healthy thought that doesn't really add up. But no matter what's happening, sounds, feelings, what you're seeing, you can find a way to make it fake when, when you're sick. Wow. And at, so at this point, did they give you some type of diagnosis? After all that, they gave me psychotic disorder NOS. So not, not otherwise specified? Yes. Yeah. And they gave me some medication and they said, and then that's where actually my first depression really hit. But, uh, I, I tapered off medication and I recovered. Wait, are you saying they, they gave you medication for the psychosis and the medication threw you into a depression? So I think it was a combination. So they gave me Respiral and Lexapro. And I think 
when I was home, you know, I was, my college experience was over. My friends were in college still. I'm living at home with my mom. I just had an experience that I have no idea what happened. And they're telling me I can't drink alcohol. I can't do anything that I was, you know, I can't um, enjoy my whatever, my second year of college. And then also I'm taking this medication. It's making me hungrier. I have no energy to work out gaining weight so the combination of all of that i think was my first depression was was really that that's where i was at that point and how soon after you left the hospital did the depression hit i'd say it was about probably a couple weeks i mean when i first got home i'm like this is amazing i have a bed i have food i have because like, you, when you're locked up in the hospital it's pretty confining and now i go home and i have my freedom back but then there's all these pills and yeah it takes i'd say three weeks later i was laying on the floor, looking at the ceiling, like really feeling bad for myself. Yeah. How long was the hospital stay? Two weeks. Two weeks. And then, uh, so you were feeling pretty good. It sounds like coming out of there, like, yes, I get to go back home. And then I hear you talking about all these other stressors too, not being able to get to college and be with your friends and everything. And you mentioned just laying on the floor in a depression. What were some other symptoms of your depression? There was anxiety, high anxiety. And what I remember is if I used to hallucinate, so if I used to think someone on the radio was talking about me when I was manic, well, now that I'm depressed, like I don't think that person on the radio is talking about me, but I just feel so anxious. Like it's, it's just replaced with this anxiety. Like what just happened? You know, like nothing, it's confusing. You, you lose a lot of confidence and you're just like, really, I was walking around thinking that the radio was talking about me. Like that doesn't make me feel very good. That, that doesn't make my, I, I'm not a confident, you know, person. I'm, I'm vulnerable right now. Right. So it's like that vulnerability. And then my, my personality has always been to kind of interact with people, make friends, you know, not like crazy outgoing, but, but, you know, hang out and have fun with people and to lose the even um, desire to go do that and saying, no, I don't want to talk to anybody. If any of my friends would call, I would get anxious about that alone. And so it was just a combination of like social isolation, being too afraid to go do something, but then very bored and restless sitting at home and just the nightmare cycle that that is. Right. Were you able to sleep? I was able to sleep (laughs) because I think I took my medicine at night. I always ate a lot and uh, I was up pretty early in the mornings, but I always was able to sleep at night. Okay. And uh, you mentioned that you believe the medication, as well as all of these other pieces of the experience you had just been through, being a part of what threw you into a depression. And at the same time, uh, many people who I have spoken to who live with bipolar disorder, it seems to be almost like a cycle so that it's pretty typical for somebody who goes through a mania to then crash with a depression. So do you think it it may have just been a normal progression in a way from, and I have no idea, I'm, that's why I'm asking, of your bipolar disorder? It's, it's certainly possible because I've seen that same pattern all, all three times. Uh, but it, yeah, it's very hard to tell if you come out of a depression because the meds are right or because it passed or because you're doing the right things that are non-med related. But what I found is every time I have a, I have about a two week manic episode, then I have this, I'm sorry, I have a seven day manic episode. Then I have about a week or two in the hospital. And then my, to, for me to recover takes about 18 months to go from like, Hey, I just got out of the hospital. 
the whole recovery cycle of, of the depression, uh, it takes about 18 months for me. And that's happened three times. So I think the question is, yes, it's been the same exact cycle three separate times. That is a long time. But uh, and, you know, you've got me thinking now, too, even if it is a typical cycle, there are a lot of reasons that it could be the typical cycle, such as many times people in manias talk about not getting not sleeping at all because they're up all hours of night with this high energy and doing things. And once you're if that's how you're living for a week or something, then it would be easy to, to crash, you know, so you, you might be just putting your, your body into a situation where a depression is more likely. Yeah, yeah. And again, I'm just kind of hypothesizing from stories I've heard, but that's really interesting. So you get home, you go through this depression, and it sounds like this depression lasted for quite some time. Yeah, it took about six months to, uh, to even really feel like going and talking to a friend. So wow. six months, just like, and I'm lucky, my mom was with me the whole time. So she was home, I had a place to go, which is more than most people have. But she, uh, yeah, I, I was just a mess for six months, didn't want to do anything. And then I'd say the next six months is just like a very uncomfortable transitional period of like, I guess I could do that. You kind of have to force yourself to do everything for six months. Um, and I'm generalizing, but that's kind of the idea. And then usually the last six months is things are getting easier and like you can kind of see the light and you're almost there. And then for me, 18 months later, I'm, I'm like my old self again. And it's just like, wow, how could that have happened? And for me, you know, three, three times later, now I'm, <laughs> now we're in that stage again, which is, is good. And I don't necessarily anticipate it happening again, because I have some good things in order now that I didn't have before. But yeah, to answer your question, I just think it's, it's a really rough six months. It's a little bit easier for six months. And then you kind of like, at least for me, I, I kind of transition over those last six months. So when you were good after recovering after this 18 month ordeal, how how long were you living in a situation where you would be able to say you were mentally stable before you had your second episode? I would say it's 2007. Yeah, I'd say it was, I want to get this right, 2011. Yeah, it was probably four years. Okay, four years where you felt pretty good, mentally stable, and you were not on meds at the point either, right? No, they, they tapered me off the meds. But uh, I was, yeah, things were good. I was, that's when I was a professional poker player doing really well with that. And were the doctors, were you still seeing any therapists, a psychiatrist at all? You were off meds, so probably not a psychiatrist. Were you seeing a psychologist at all? I was seeing a psychologist, very um, like spotty, you know, not, not as much. So there was all this treatment and therapy and, and meds in the beginning. And then the whole package kind of like tapered off with the medication as I was getting better. And then once I was better, everyone was kind of like, all right, that was behind us. One psychotic episode. I didn't have any diagnosis and, and we all moved on really. But I did, I did check in with someone, uh, I'd say probably like maybe once a month or so. But it was uh, the understanding at the time was I had one psychotic episode and that could be the end of it. And now I'm good to go. Yeah. We don't need to talk about why it happened. <laughs> we don't need to talk about what it was. Right. Or on, he's fine now and, and, and life is good. And hopefully it, it was a one-time episode and it never happens again. Exactly. And then, uh, and then you said you were playing professional poker and doing well. Yep. So 
Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to ask when when did the second episode hit, and and what did that start out like? Yeah, the the second episode, I'm, you know, make, supporting myself financially, living with roommates, having a great time, and I again, some of this anger just came back. And some of the hallucinations and, and paranoia came back slowly. Can you or, remember some of those hallucinations? Yeah, I played online poker mainly. So I would think about, you know, I'd play a bunch of tables. Let's say I was playing 12 tables at the same time on my screen. And I'd be thinking about who are these people in each of these squares at their houses? Like, where are they? What are they doing? What are they looking like? And so I'm playing poker, but I'm thinking about these things that have nothing to do with poker. And I played so much poker that clicking was, I was kind of on autopilot with all that, but just thinking way too deeply about like what's on the other side of the screen. Um, If someone would drive by, I would think it was like paparazzi, like trying to look in on my session. I mean, one time it got, when it got pretty bad, I mean, I turned the computer on its side to try to like play sideways. I I tried using the mouse with mouse with both hands, things (laughs) You know, like, like just going back to basketball, I don't know what it was, but these are the types of things that, that I was doing. And then in a very dramatic way, my, my mom recognized something was, was wrong, probably based on our phone conversations. And I was very upset, very angry being asked to go see a psychiatrist for the second time being told, Hey, it's no big deal. We're just checking in. But I'd be like, you know, why don't you go see one that, you know, very, very angry and, and reacting strongly to this. Cause you know, I, I thought I'd been past all this. So why are we even talking about this anymore? And really probably this is like one of the most dramatic things that actually that I wrote about was I just had this public episode downtown and I was trying to steal a bike and I threw a rock at a, at a huge glass window at a library. Um, I was walking on cars. I was punching out side view mirrors. And finally, uh, the cops actually came to, to get me. And like, they, I almost got tased. They put me in handcuffs. They pushed me into the back of the cop car, driving me to the same hospital that I was at last time. Whereas I'm like very, um, you know, I'm, I'm resisting. And then they pull me out. They put me in a padded room, which I remembered instantly, you know, that memory just clicked. Like I'd already been here. This can't be good. And then they kind of sedated me with a needle. And then I woke up and I was back on a a different floor for, for round two of, of the hospitalization experience. Oh my goodness. And you mentioned recognizing the, the padded room so were you able to connect right away this time? Like, uh, this isn't going to be good. Or were you still kind of feeling, uh, like you did the first time kind of like, Ooh, they're bringing me somewhere special. Cause I'm a special person. Well, I was a little bit more mature, you know, a couple of years later, I was now financially independent. I was paying rent tax. You know, I, I was a man now in my head at 22, 23. And, uh, I just remember like something's wrong here. Like they're, they're wrong cause they're the cops and they don't know what they're doing. But then I noticed they're like driving me to this place that looked familiar. And I'm like, no, is this the same place? But when they actually brought me into that room, I just got a quick flash and I knew, like I knew where I was. I had some sense that this is the place where you can't leave. This is the place where you have to sit around all day. This is, you know, it was less about me being chosen to go there and more about me being like, 
no, like this shouldn't be happening again. Right, right. And just to bring you back into what you were talking about in downtown, in the public, can you just give us a, a little better of a sense of what you're going through? Like what's going through your mind when you're standing on top of a car or whipping a rock at a big building? Are you just, is this all out of anger or are voices telling you to do it? Or what's just, if you could get into some of the detail as much as you remember about that episode. Yeah, this is, I, I believe it's anger. So it starts with me and my mom are sitting at a diner just eating breakfast before the before the appointment with the doctor. And I'm hearing hallucinations at the restaurant. I'm hearing other people saying like, he shouldn't be mad about this. He should go back into the hospital. Why is he so like, why doesn't he want to go to the hospital? He's like, I'm just hearing this stuff. It's not happening, but I'm hearing it from other people in the restaurant. And I just get really angry and I say, you know what? Like I'm, I'm leaving and I leave my mom there and I walk out. And then I just kind of like the whole world becomes very small. So when you think you're, when you're in this manic episode and you think you're like above what's happening in the real world, buildings become smaller. Cars are tiny, like things that are, that are in real life. They're not as significant anymore. So that would be the best way to describe it. I'm just thinking like, this is almost like a playground. Like, here's a bike. Let me try to steal this bike. Let's see what someone's going to do about it. You know, uh, I'm going to throw this rock as hard as I can. Like if it shatters, awesome. If it doesn't shatter, then that's fine. I can try again. Uh, I actually skipped this the first time, but I, I ripped out a park bench just just to cause some sort of like disturbance. And then I, I just had this feeling of like lazy and, and angry. I don't know, something about like people being lazy and me not liking that just as a as across the board type of a thought. Uh, and then, like I said, when when cars are tiny and you think you're like better than everything, you're just like jumping on a car would almost be like hopping over a, you know, a rock on the street right? And become tiny. Um, and then th that's my best way to describe it. It's like as, as nonchalantly as you could walk up the stairs, like that could be you like walking on cars. Cause it's just like part of your environment. Right. Yeah. Wow. And then the police are called, you get thrown into the padded room and similar experience to your first time is your stay at the hospital. No, this one was much different. So I was a little bit older and my first thought was, okay, how do I get out of here? So I had the same thought process on needing to escape, but instead of like trying to play tricks with the cameras and things like that, I tried to take a more like social approach to getting out. So I introduced myself to all my roommates. I tried to figure out who was what and who was from where and how we could all get out of there. And, and it, it didn't really matter. Um, one thing I also tried to do was I tried to get the attendant to like hurt me in some way so that I'd be able to leave. And what I did was I like laid on the ground, like with my head up right in front of the door on my uh, room. And then the guy like opened it. And I thought if he hit my head, I could be like, he hit my head, you know, let me get out of here. But all that happened was like, he kind of like tapped me and he was like, just get up from there. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> like, this isn't going to work. So, so very similar thought process in terms of like, I need to escape, but different approach because I was more interactive with people and I was really like, kind of like playing the role now of, okay, I'm one, I'm in here with everybody. I've done this before. Like maybe I'll be able to figure out how to get out. Right. Now. Right. Did you recognize some of the staff and did they recognize you? No. So there's many different floors in a hospital with different age groups. And this one, I did not recognize anyone. Okay. 
the process of the stay was the same where there was group therapy and you were hanging out in the communal area a bit during the day? Yeah, very similar, similar hallucinations about, you know, getting out and things like that. But I, I was, I didn't take my medicine the first few days in the hospital because I just didn't think anything was wrong with me. So they and, gave you medicine, but you refused to take it or did you pretend to take it? I, I refused the medication. And then on my third night when I'm sitting there and like no one's telling me when I'm supposed to be leaving or not, I just said, all right, give me the medication. And I started taking it. And then I got out. And in my mind, in my mind, I got out because I took medication. But the reason I got out was because the medication was helping me. And that was what helped everybody understand, like, it was cool for me to leave. Right. So, yeah, it was a tough, tough situation. Interesting. And then when you leave the hospital this time, same deal? You go? Do you go to live with your mom again? Or do you go straight back to your roommates? I, I go back home for a while for the first couple months there I'm back home and then yeah that's that transitional period of of recovery I actually went back to my roommates who are very cool like they very low-key you know not what you would expect like a couple guys living together like we were all just very like relaxed like hang out whatever and they knew what you had been through and everything I think they knew some of it I know that my parents were in touch with them but they didn't really tell me any details and I think what I got from them was that I just kind of disappeared for a while. They didn't really understand what happened. Did So you didn't tell them about your hospital stay or anything? I told them a few things. And, you know, in the state that I was in, I, I wasn't in a place to really even articulate, like, what had just happened, even if someone asked me. So I was just very confused and just generally said, like, yeah, like, I have some of these issues that I go through and, like, it just happened again, but I'm fine now. Like, that's kind of how it came out, I think. Right. And they were cool with it and they were still cool with you. Oh yeah, totally. Totally. Uh huh. And then did you start going back to work right away? So I tried my job work at that point was still playing poker. Oh, that's right. And, <laughs> and online poker actually got shut down a few week, a few months into my recovery. So I was trying to play poker and I was getting bored and not really having as much fun with it. But, uh, then all of online poker got shut down. So I really had no place to play at all unless I went to a casino, which you know, I didn't love as much as online, whatever. So I got a job probably six to 10 months in, like after that six month period, somewhere in the transitional period, I got a job selling paper door to door. Okay. Which was difficult. Um, but then over time, as I kind of like got better again, I got into like selling gym memberships and actually ran a gym and then I was able to get involved with a startup company that sells software to gyms uh, in Texas. And that's kind of when I moved to Texas to take this new job, this cool startup opportunity, and kind of like move far away again and after this episode. What were you and what were your folks thinking as you were moving away after having had a second episode? Were, were you and were your folks nervous about that? Nope. We, we were all excited about it. Uh, I mean, I had already been running like a huge gym basically with four people that reported to me. I was in a managerial role and I was doing really well and I was relaxed and handling a lot of stress. And for quite some time, you know, probably at least a year, I was comfortably like living on my own, working in definitely in good spirits. And so, yeah, like nobody really said and I know I wouldn't have even wanted to hear it if they did, but but it was kind of like, all right, Brett's going to try this job in Texas, and like we'll keep in touch, and he's fine. Like we we can trust that that's uh, that's all good. And were your parents 
like in hindsight, do you think they were nervous? I just feel like I know you described your family as being really tight and your mom obviously was there for you to support you after both episodes. I would imagine that she would have some nervous feelings about you going far away from home. Yeah, I think that's fair. I The first thing I did was I scheduled therapy. I found a therapist and scheduled, and my mom was very happy about that, that I kind of came up with that idea on my own just to keep myself in check. Nice. Um, but it would almost be as, like, and I don't know, obviously we don't know each other very well, but it would be like if I said, hey, I'm going to take a road trip to California tomorrow, and you were like, no, you don't sound good. Like, I don't know if you could, should do that. You see what I'm saying? Like, when I'm in a good place, it's very hard to worry or because you don't really want to like rain down on someone who's feeling pretty good and just living a normal life, it would seem. Right. That's true. That, That's true. Um, yeah. So you go off to, to Texas, the job starts up and what's the, what's it like when you first start the job? Things going smoothly for you? So there was a couple of us there, like two or three of us there when I first started. My boss was not a good boss. Nothing was really organized. But I really liked the job and there was a lot of potential in the company. And outside of the job, I had a great, I had a nice apartment. I was really enjoying being in Texas, which, you know, I'm from Pennsylvania. So it was just the weather was great. The food was awesome. I was living downtown, you know, close to everything. And uh, really over time, we, I kind of got over the initial humps of of like my boss being difficult and, and some of those things. And you know, three years later, we had 35 people in that office, um, wow. managing the whole office <laughs> and our company is really growing and doing amazing. And then that's kind of when the third issue starts, uh, as, as we're just like really, really growing and, and doing well. So the, the third episode comes in and what's the start of that episode like, and did anybody you work with, were you tight with anybody and had you shared with them any of your mental health history? No, I actually kept that private from the group there. Now, my older brother, he actually, it, this is his company. So he started the company. He's actually in Pennsylvania still with the engineers, okay? So my older brother runs the company with the engineers in Pennsylvania, and I'm in, I'm in Texas with my team doing customer service, implementation support. So I'm regularly talking to my older brother here. Right. So he's the only one that has any clue about my history, but I, I learned to kind of keep that in more of like a private place uh, when it came to like people that, that I worked with. Right. So uh, tell us about when, when this third episode started up. So the third episode starts, I'm stressed, I'm isolated, I'm not getting a lot of sleep, and as usual, I'm unaware. I'm thinking, oh, just another day at work, this is awesome, right? So I... You know, I realize it kind of at work, uh, I start to hear that same people are talking about me again. Like it kind of sounds like that through the wall and it's probably not real, but it might be. And then, you know, over a couple of days of that, I'm just, again, people are just talking about me. That's what it feels like. And so once I kind of get behind that, okay, people are talking about me again, then that, that ramp up begins. So I get in my car and I'm like, I got to test out my car. And, you know, I drove 110 in my car. And I just did a lot of back to back to back things that were, that were dangerous. Um, all in the book, right? E- so each section in the book is like what I was doing at one thing after another. And so when you start 
hearing and believing people are talking all about you, I would imagine as this is the start of a mania, you probably aren't able to think at all logically about that and say, hold on, I've been through this two times before. Maybe they aren't really talking about me. Exactly. That that goes out the window. Right. And it becomes like, they're talking about me. You know, this is amazing. Every person, radio, TV, like the whole, any communication I'm getting, people are really interested in me. And right. That, so all the talk about you is, again, good stuff, like this kind of grandiosing. 100%. Right. Yeah. And, and if there is, it, it's just like if you were on TV, you know, like, if someone says something bad, like there is some bad, it's not all positive, but then you're just like, Oh, that person doesn't get it or they're a hater or whatever. Like yeah. you're, you're hater like you're, or jealous. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So all the talk is going on. You're starting to do some, some kind of uh, dangerous activities like the driving. What, what other things did you do that were not, uh, not along the lines of being mentally stable? So there's a lot. <laughs> um, <laughs> One, I, I ran, what did I do? I, oh, I, I basically almost jumped off of a bridge. So I walked up to a bridge and I had this whole thing going on with nature and man-made things versus nature. And I determined that I was going to follow nature. And so I go up to this bridge. Now, this isn't like a life ending fall if I, if I jump off, but it's pretty significant. It's going to be in water. There's a sign next to the bridge that says no diving. So my logic is, well, if I'm going to follow nature and the sign says no diving, then I shouldn't listen to the sign and I should jump off. Like that was my thought process from seeing a no diving sign. Now, so I get up and I'm about to do it. And for some reason I just, I don't do it. And then I just like go back to my day to the next thing. But like, that's kind of a little segment of like the thought process of how something really dangerous could happen. And then it's just like, oh no, like, let's not do this now. Let's just go to the next thing. Right. That's funny. Yeah. As if nothing happened, nothing out of the ordinary happened. Let's just keep on with the day. Um, And the bridge that you're describing isn't at all a thought process of wanting to attempt suicide. It's just wanting to be with nature. Exactly. It's kind of like, let me see how far I can push this. Does, does gravity still apply to me? Does, can I fly? You know, it's, it's more along the lines of, let me test these, these powers that I've been given. Right. Wow. And so this episode also goes on for a full week. This episode goes on for a full week. And and the last one, they say that your episodes evolve over time. So this one was by far like the most disturbing compared to the other ones just because it was just thing after thing, flawed thinking, like eating a pickle out of the garbage can. Uh, I don't know if you read the intro of the book, but I'm I'm in a pizza place yelling at people and telling them to shut up. And just thing, I, you know, I go into a restaurant and I am having a mental mind reading battle with someone who's probably not even paying attention to me, but in my mind, we're having this this fight. Uh, and then one other one that's bad, I went into a, a, a hotel, like a luxury hotel. There was like a cocktail party and I just was wearing sweatpants and a hoodie and tennis shoes. And I just like laid down on the couch in the middle of this party. And <laughs> like, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? And I was like, this looks like a comfortable couch. Why can't I lay here? Just very like rude and just very, very um, 
you know, I, I couldn't imagine. I can't imagine. I, I can't believe I did those things. And is honest. that still also with this kind of attitude throughout the mania of being somebody that everybody, you know, looks up to and, and you have the, the authority to be able to intrude upon a party and sit on a couch because that's who you are as this kind of grandiose figure. Yep. That's it. That That's what gives you the confidence to just have no inhibition about doing that. Right. Yeah. And are you, you still going home at night and still going to work during the day throughout this mania? And are you sleeping? I'm not sleeping. I'm not eating. And I'm calling off work sick. And I'm, instead of going to work, I'm finding new things to do. I, I ran on a treadmill until I like broke the treadmill one day. I had this like manic, rage and energy and i just like did that uh i my apartment i completely trashed my apartment i smashed things and broke the oven glass and i turned the shower on and created a steam room like anything you can imagine just like leaving a trail of just like confusion behind me pretty much what i wherever i was but yeah each day i would kind of regroup uh, but you know what? One night I got up at two in the morning and I drove my car through the city. And the only purpose that I had that night was to try to drive through green lights. So if I saw a green light, I would drive to the green light and go through and then just look around and say, where's the next green light? And, and I did that for an hour in <laughs> wow. the night. <laughs> yeah. And, and so it's just a complete, you know, lost touch with reality completely. And this was, again, about a week. And, and did your brother, who I know is living in Pennsylvania at the time, far away, but still connected tightly with the company, did he have any inkling of, or clue of this happening? It, it wasn't until I was supposed to visit my family for the holidays. And I think I just, again, nonchalantly just said to my mom, like, I don't think I'm coming home this, this year for the holidays. And I think that that triggered something. And then all of a sudden, like everybody was calling me. Like, like, I think they figured it out kind of collectively that something was wrong. But no one was there. You know, I was by myself. So they really, I, I could fake it pr pretty good over the phone. So, um, yeah, it was about a week. And then that the pizza place experience is what kind of led me to getting taken into the hospital in Texas now. Once again by police? By police. Uh, so this time I was in the back of an ambulance because I had kind of like I hadn't drinking, I hadn't drank or eaten anything in so long that I almost just completely passed out. But they, uh, they, the police kind of like passed me off to an ambulance who then took me to the hospital, and that was like my third entrance. So you know there was no like I'm gonna walk to the hospital today because I'm feeling sick. Each time it was like a very dramatic like entrance into this situation. Right, right. So this was at the pizza place after the yelling. At, at customers and then you essentially just passed out there? Well, so I yelled at everybody. They threw me out of the restaurant. I kind of dusted it off just like at the bridge. I was kind of like, oh, that was, that was weird. And then I just kept walking. And then just kind of like with the, uh, the walking on cars episode, a cop car just pulled up. So someone must have been afraid, honestly, at the pizza place and called the cops. And they probably describe what I look like. And then they just kind of pulled up next to me and said, you know, then they put me in handcuffs. But it was it was a much gentler experience the third time. OK. But yeah. And then I kind of like passed out in the back of the cop car a little bit. And then they an ambulance came up and that they passed me over to that. Right. And then they drive you straight to a psychiatric hospital. Yep. Yep. Third, third time in there. 
and this time you couldn't even pull out your uh, escape route because it was a new place. <laughs> yeah, I, no, I, I wouldn't. If it was the first hospital, it would be my third time. I'm gonna have it out. <laughs> so, like right away, are you able to put it, piece it together where they're taking you and why? Yeah, once they said, because I said so. Hey, th- they said, you know, you're fine. Like they asked me my address, and I could an- I could answer questions like, here's my address, here's my name, here's my phone number, and they were like, wow, he's pretty coherent. And I was like, okay, cool. So does this mean I can go home now? And he goes, no, like you can't, you can't be yelling at people in a pizza place. Like we have to take you to the hospital. It was, it was more of a conversation. And then once he said, we have to take you to the hospital, like my heart sank. And I just got that same kind of feeling that I had when I connected the pad padded room. And then when I realized like the door was locked behind me in the first episode, which I wrote about, you just get this sinking feeling like, oh, here we go again. Like this is really going to be uncomfortable for a while. Right. And how yep. long was this stay? And um, up until this point, you still have no diagnosis. I don't think I asked you after your second episode. Did they give you a diagnosis, or do you have a diagnosis at this point? Psychotic uh, disorder NOS. Same same thing after the second episode. Same drug plan and tapering off of drugs. Same. He's good again. Those two were just in the past. We're fine. Right. So what happens this third time? third time I'm told I have bipolar disorder <laughs> and uh you know it's it sinks in pretty hard it it actually it's very scary I'm actually writing a, another book right now I, I finished it and I'm trying I'm in the process of getting it published that it kind of starts where we are right now where it's like you've been told you have bipolar disorder how do you recover so yeah that's kind of what happens this time around they they tell me I have bipolar disorder are you through with the mania when they tell you this diagnosis or are you still in the midst of a mania because i know it seemed like when you were hospitalized it still took you a week or two weeks to get finally medicated and out of your mania yeah i'm i'm still i'm still in the mania but it's a little bit more um intro it's uh, it's inside more than than me acting out so i'm still having these thoughts and thinking these things but i'm not walking on cars are you coherent enough for them when they say you have bipolar disorder i hear it i don't know that i'm like reacting in a way that i've just been told i had a chronic you know health condition but i notice the people around me are really concerned and taking a lot of notes on what he's saying and honestly at that point i'm just kind of like okay, like, what do I have to do? It's a little bit, it's, it's not a natural reaction in the state that I'm in, but I am better than I was when I was yelling at people in a pizza place, you know, two weeks ago. Right. And can you, I mean, was this on your mind a lot or can you remember when you finally got out of that mania thinking like, wow, I have bipolar disorder and what, what kind of, how that landed with you? Yeah. Once it kind of hit, I was so confused. Like I didn't know what it meant. So if my, if my stomach ached or whatever, I thought that might've been from the lithium. If, you know, I'm getting blood work done, I thought, Oh, I have to get this done every day for the rest of my life now. So I was more focused on the practical tasks that I would have to do now that I didn't have to do before. But I did have some sort of trust in the back of my mind that like the medicine and the doctors would get me to a place where I'd be fine. So I, I was just, uh, and then randomly it would kind of come up, I think. So, so every once in a while I'm like, man, I have bipolar disorder. Like my life is completely different now. Like this is terrible. And I probably use worse language than that. <laughs> but, right, right. 
so yeah, it's just a pro it's a complete, it's a process of understanding the practical things you have to do. And then like emotionally being told you have it and then still being a little sick and manic. And, and I think as the months go on, it all just, it, it starts to shrink a little bit and you, you just accept the fact that this is what's happening now. Is there any sense of, wow, I like, I finally have a diagnosis that might make sense. You know, I'm going through these manias, I'm having these depressive episodes and this actually makes sense. And now I have something I can kind of wrap my hands around and, and deal with properly. Yes, it definitely helps. It's not the greatest feeling in the world to know that the, the thing that I can grasp my hands around is like a chronic brain disorder. Like that's not really something that I want to like, hold too close to me. Right. But I'm more settled that the people that I trust around me are telling me that here's kind of the plan. Here's what you need to do. I'll help you with this. I'll help you with that. You know, the doctor saying, listen to what I'm saying. The, you know, my psych, my therapist says, be prepared for your meetings, like bring some stuff in. And all I can say is like, I've been feeling very good and healthy since I established this new lifestyle. And so I am actually thankful for that. And if that's what it means to have this label of bipolar disorder, then I can definitely live with that. But in the very beginning, it's kind of like more scary and confusing than anything. Like, yeah, I got this, this diagnosis, but like, what does it mean? <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's the tough part in the beginning. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure it must be a lot of fear in the beginning. So how long ago was it, was this last hospitalization? The last hospitalization was December of 2016. Okay, so you're quite a few years out. Yeah, yep. And are you feeling like, are, are you pretty confident that you may never have another episode in your life? Or are you believing that, no, I'm sure to have one? I'm just curious where your mind's at with that. Well, I always remind myself that it's there's no 100% certainty that I won't have one. Right. So I can just live that way. But also... I'm on the right medication now and they're not tapering me off of that. Like there's, there's things that are happening now that have not happened in the previous two episodes in terms of like, you know, like a, a recovery plan and like, you know, managing the illness. So I feel good about that. And really at the end of the day, like I'm just going to do what I can to, I'm doing everything I can to, to live a healthy life with this. But if something does happen, like I'm not going to, I'm not going to feel bad or, or like blame it on myself that would be my goal. My goal would not to be to like put it on myself. And then also I think about it too. I mean, if I'm having another episode, that means like I'm manic for, for a week and I'm all over the place. So that's going to be everyone else's problem for a while. You know, hopefully if I, if I make it, which can be very dangerous, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's something that I do not believe will happen again, but it wouldn't surprise me if it does. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, and, and to me, that seems like a really healthy place to be, to to you know you're going to live your life how you want to live it. You're going to do what you need to do to stay mentally healthy, and you're not going to let the possibility of another episode worry you and, and create a bunch of unnecessary anxiety. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's uh, I think it's something that it provides some layer of structure, honestly. Like, it it kind of forces me, you know, I take medicine three times a day. Every time I take medicine, I'm reminded of what I'm doing right and what I should keep doing. That's and awesome. Under three times a day. Yeah, that's awesome. 
So you're taking medicine. Are you still seeing a psychologist at all? Yeah, I still see a, I see a psychiatrist and a psychologist um, every other week. So every week I'm seeing some sort of medical professional. That's fantastic. That's another great way to stay healthy. And I'm curious, have you ever thought about or tried a support group? Yeah, so I did try a support group when I first was in that six-month phase of really being a little confused. And I didn't, I personally, I, it, was, it was good to be there and I felt very loved and welcome and it was nice to see because I don't have any really any other people in my network that live with bipolar. So it was nice to be around among peers. Uh, but personally, I didn't necessarily feel like sharing as much and I, I don't know, I, I prefer to work more closely with my doctors, I think, but I can see why they would be valuable. But yeah, I, I was more um, kind of in and out. I went to a few of them, but then I kind of reverted back to just my, my doctors. Right. Well, I'm glad you tried one and gave it a shot because I think uh, I'm a big believer in support groups and I know it's not for everybody, but I do think it's very different than in a hospital situation where there's actually a therapist running it in the hospital and you're dealing with a lot of different people who are probably in the midst of a crisis since they're hospitalized. And I think, you know, I was able to find a support group that I still go to, even though I've been mentally healthy since 2010, I still go every other week to a men's support group for depression and anxiety. And, uh, for me, it's just a, it's a group of men. There's instant trust and we've all been through similar, similar things. And for me at this point, when I'm healthy, a lot of it is, it's therapeutic to help other people as well. So I feel like part of it is giving back and it's a resource for me that is like other resources, like my medications or, or a therapist that I've started to see again. I'm not going to throw away for me any tools that I may be using that may keep me out of the depths of the depression that I was in. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Congratulations on that. That's, that's a long period of time to, to be healthy. Yeah, well, thank you. And I think like you, too, though, I think, you know, like you said, you're in a much healthier place. You're taking medications. You're seeing a psychiatrist and a therapist every other week. And, you know, at least when it comes to depression, it could be very different for bipolar disorder. But I know they say if you've been through one episode of a major depression, you're more susceptible and more likely to have a second one and then a third one. But I think oftentimes, at least in my mind, that a lot of times that's probably people who get better and forget about it and don't do anything about it. Or maybe they took a pill for six weeks or two months, three months and quit the pill and haven't done anything else. And I think if you take these things seriously, if you stick to a regimen, whether it's medication or whether it's a therapist, whether it's just being on a healthy exercising routine and, and doing some mindfulness, whatever it might be for you. But, but I think it's important to make some lifestyle changes to really stay on top of it. And then I don't know if those, that data is so accurate for those people. You know, I don't, I'm hopeful. I'm in the very same boat as you are. As far as my depression, I've had two very serious major bouts and I'm very hopeful that I don't have a third ever, but I, I know it might happen. And that's why I still do the things I do to, to stay fit. Yep. Makes a lot of sense. Well, man, you have quite a story and can you share with everybody the, the title of your book and uh, where they can find your book? Yeah, the title is Crossover, A Look Inside a Manic Mind. 
and you can find it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, really anywhere. But Amazon has been the main like hub for people to purchase it. There's a Kindle version, and there's going to be an audiobook as well. But there's also the paperback. And then I have a couple of social media things happening. So I have like crossover look inside a manic mind on Facebook, uh, and then it's just Brett Stevens on Twitter and LinkedIn, and then Instagram is crossover underscore book. So I'm I'm really doing most of the marketing myself, and that, that's what I could come up with. But yeah, book is everywhere, and obviously, uh, I really appreciate anyone who, who's even showing any type of interest. Always open to talking about it, whether you bought the book or not. Happy to discuss these types of topics. Well, and another plug for the book, like I said, I've only had the chance so far to read an excerpt, but your writing is really good. It was very captivating. I didn't want to stop once I started, so I'm looking forward to getting the book and reading it. I know you... Do you still have a website? I did see your website. Want to make sure that people know about the website if you if that's something you're still utilizing? Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Um, InsideAManicMind.com. That gives you all the information about the book. You can get a free sample there as well. Awesome. And- so that's InsideAManicMind.com. No yes. spaces or underscores or anything like that. That's awesome. And uh, so. Before we wrap up, Brett, I would love to ask you if you have any suggestions or pieces of advice or wisdom for somebody out there right now who might be struggling, whether it is the midst of a mania, maybe it's coming down from a mania or in a depressive bout. Yeah. Well, my first thing would be to hang in there. You don't necessarily know what's going to happen in the future, even though it seems like you do and you've already assumed that that, that's what it's going to be like. Oftentimes it's not. And then more of like a practical tip, you got to schedule everything. So if you are not going to do anything tomorrow, go to your calendar and say on your schedule, doing nothing from eight to eight. That, That works because what you can do then is you can add little things, eating, brushing my teeth, showering, and what I found over time is if you just schedule these things, you start to understand, like, if it's on my schedule, I'm going to do it. And, you know, I people were telling me all types of kind of high level, you know, motivational things. And I think that's great, but it's it's not as useful. The first thing that really kind of like brought me out was understanding that if I read something down and put it on my schedule, like it doesn't necessarily matter how my emotions are at that at that moment in time. Like I'm just going to follow the schedule and do it that way. So that would be my, my biggest takeaway from, from what I've learned is, is really leaning on, on time and scheduling and then t- trying to, to, as much as you can, take the emotion out of some of this stuff because it's really difficult. That's awesome. That's great advice. I have a, a follow-up question for you about that advice, just so listeners understand, too. If, if you had written down a schedule, I love that idea, but... I'm guessing for a lot of people, it's still maybe really challenging. Like, ooh, I see this on my calendar. So I would imagine that it doesn't necessarily make it super easy, but it reminds you, and then you have to put in the effort to make sure that you do it. Yeah, I think it. it no, it's definitely not easy. Really, nothing about this is easy. Right. You're kind of like scrapping to find something. For whatever reason, it clicked when someone said, hey, if you're really happy, you still have to eat breakfast. If you're really sad, you still have to eat breakfast and everything in between. Yeah. So it's kind of made it like just stare at, you know, just do these things and don't overthink it. And no matter how you're feeling, do these things. And I, a couple weeks of that, I just really started to feel better. And that was like the, the biggest challenge was like this doing the smallest thing. 
And, you know, that that's really what kind of got me over. And I know everybody's experience is totally different. That's kind of like what worked for me was this like very intense discipline. Like if I'm writing it down, I'm doing it. Otherwise, like I'm just going to write down that I'm doing nothing. Yeah, I think that's awesome. I actually one of my blog posts is about creating a structure for yourself and utilizing a calendar. Great advice. Well, Brett, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for the work you've done about sharing your story, which I think is incredible. And I think people can gain a lot from it. I hope people check out your book, Crossover. And uh, I want to thank you for being on The Depression Files. Oh, thank you very much for having me. It's been been very uh, interesting and, and I had a good time with you. Thanks. All right. Well, make sure you stay healthy. All right. You too. Thanks. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.